Hey, this is Dave McCall. This week, I'm joined by Gene Bolin. Gene's been a chief scientist, quality control officer, and he's an executive in the area of 3D printing, specifically around soft tissue. Once upon a time, Gene was part of a team that approached NASA about how best they could help them in future missions, maybe even missions to Mars. And they suggested, you know, if you could help us print food, not just regular sludge food, but actually savory remind you of home food, you could really change the life of these astronauts. And Gene's team tackled that problem. Gene joins us this week to explain what that adventure was like and why it's important. So join us for the conversation on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on Earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Gene Bolin, welcome to the QTS Experience. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm very excited that you're here, um, in particular because we're talking about a couple things that are near and dear to my heart. Space. Uh, my dad and family has worked in or around the space aerospace industry for a very long time. And he worked, he was associated with the shuttle for a long time and space station for a long time. And then other ancillary projects over uh, many decades. My, my mom and brother, a lot of people in and around that, um, uh, that endeavor. So it's always captured my imagination. And then food. I'm built for food. So uh, I was like, well, it's a match made in heaven. Perfect, uh, perfect thing. So thank you for joining. I guess where I wanted to start off with was I heard you speaking one time. Uh, and it seems like you've solved one of the great mysteries of humanity, which is which came first, the chicken or the egg? Can you answer that question for us? Sure. So it's, it's kind of funny. Yeah, it's based on, uh, based on where I used to work. And it was a company that was launched by flying quail embryo. So, you know, for, uh, for us, we always said it's the chicken that came first because it was the, ch the chick or the egg that came first because it was the egg that launched the company right. and really launched what's now, you know, more than 30 years for that company you know, in space support uh, from shuttle now to ISS and moving on to big things. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it's nice to be able to finally answer that question after all these years. <laughs> it is. I, I'll take the chicken or the egg. I don't care. I am. Um, I like them both. I eat them both. Yeah. Um, so it started the conversation for me uh, because I've been fascinating with this idea of 3D printing for a long time. I know. Um, uh, a number of people that do it. In, in fact, in many of the public libraries here where I'm at in Atlanta or even a UPS store, you can bring in a design of a, you know, of a standard um, uh, polymer based, you know, something, a play mat for your board game or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, you could probably have it made for you relatively inexpensively and easily. And then as I began learning about soft tissue and organ and a number of other things that research led me to this idea of printing food. And in particular, you tell a story about how you were having um, as chief scientist at this other organization, I believe at the time, you guys and members of the organization were having a conversation with NASA about food, printing food, while all these other things are interesting. They really wanted to talk about food. Can you start us there? Why is NASA um, interested in printing food? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a great question. So, 
you know, we went down to NASA with, you know, being the, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed researcher saying, hey, you know what, we think we can solve part of the organ shortage by printing tissue and eventually printing whole organs in microgravity, and we think you should give us the opportunity to fly a bioprinter and prove that we're right. Mm. And NASA's response was, well, yeah, that might be good, but if you can print a tissue, can you print food? And we're like, no, this is a pretty expensive undertaking. Why would you want to print food? And they're like, and they're like, well, NASA's pivoting back to exploration. So, you know, it's, you know, low earth orbit, you know, it's, uh, it's the trip, uh, it's the trip to the corner store. You know, now we're looking at the uh, cross country trip of, uh, you know, looking at nine months, one way to Mars. If we're looking at long-term outpost on the moon, you know, NASA really wants to stop being a space tourist and start being a space explorer. And to do that, you have to put boots on the ground and they have to be there for a while. Mm-hmm. And that's how they pivoted back to food because while we can send components and we can send all the MREs and freeze dried and preserved foods we can, there's a certain psychological benefit to biting into something that reminds you of home. And yeah. the only way you're gonna bite into a hamburger that reminds you of home is if you make that hamburger in space. So instead of making a heart, now we can look at say, hey, let's take you know, cow cells or chicken or pig and let's make barbecue, let's make a hamburger, let's make a steak mm-hmm. and give an opportunity for that mouthfeel. So the combination of proteins and fats and everything that you've come to know from your life on earth and extend that to your mission in space for a psychological benefit so you can feel a little bit more like home so you don't feel like you're you know, a billion miles away completely isolated from the rest of humankind. So, you know, the importance for food for them is a small amount of nutrition and a big amount of psychology. Mm. And we really never looked at, you know, food and printing and 3D printing for those applications. But, you know, it's uh, it's big enough that NASA has actually put together what they call the deep space food challenge of how do you feed a crew of four for nine months one way in what is arguably the size of a city bus. So, you know, it's, uh, I think there's a lot of components to that of, you know, high quality, you know, proteins, high quality, you know, plants, but yeah, I don't know about you, but I'm not ready to become a vegetarian just because I want to go to space. So, uh, you know, I think we need to get some uh, animal proteins in here and there's a great movement on the ground looking at, you know, whether you call it cellular agriculture, lab raised food of now having the steak without the cow. So, you know, it starts with a biopsy. We can expand those cells. We have great technology for that. And, you know, where I used to work, we had programs both to expand stem cells from any mammalian source, as well as differentiate those cells and then print them into whatever the final structure is. I wanted to print a heart. NASA wanted to print a steak. So, you know, (laughs) and honestly, I think the steak's going to come first. So, uh, you know, so... um, the boom right now in cellular agriculture is amazing. And I think, uh, you know, 3D printing is going to be a big piece of that because at the end of the day, you know, we still want food that looks like the food we're familiar with Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and 3D printing will get us there. So one man's heart is another man's steak is what I heard from all of that. Exactly. (laughs) Where the way to your heart is through a steak. (laughs) (laughs) My wife knows that. Opposite of your cardiology recommendation. (laughs) Right. Hey, um, so, Let's let's slide all the way back and assume that the audience first doesn't know what 3D printing is. 
And so okay. if you could describe that a little bit, and then, and then if we're thinking about it, whether it's food or soft tissue for organs or whatever, how, how just from a mechanical, you know, what is it? And then if you think of the next step in the, in that sort of process, how, how do I, I can see how I could put chemicals together to create a piece of plastic or a, you know, a lawn chair or whatever. How do I build structure, uh, much less edible structure? So if you could start at the beginning is uh, what is 3D printing and then, and then move that process or that idea into um, uh, creating something as interesting as food. Okay. So 3D printing is a process of assembling typically layer by layer of a solid material to form a complete solid structure. So if you look at a, you know, a 2D printout of, of a drawing, now we're going to take that printout, we're going to add the next layer, add the next layer, add the next layer. So if you think about your box and you just slice it into defined thickness, and that's the printing thickness layer, you just slice that into thicknesses. So then you can have an interior design, you can have an exterior design, you can have fully enclosed um, components that you would never be able to do with standard manufacturing techniques. So really, you know, 3D printing is an assembly method that opens the design possibility that you no longer have to get a physical tool to a certain location to add a feature. You can now essentially open the box and build it one layer at a time. Mm. You know, this kind of idea with plastics then expands into human tissues that, you know, all of our tissues in our body are made up of multiple components. So, you know, there's nothing that is like one solid tissue type and one solid cell type. So now we have to have that high precision spatial alignment and we can apply those same principles to tissue and put the cells that we want where we want with the nutrients and the proteins and everything else to make them function. So, you know, a tissue is really comprised of three different things. It's comprised of some type of a food source, typically blood, but it's actually the components in the blood. It's a structure or extracellular matrix. That's kind of the, that's kind of the skeleton that holds the whole system together on a cellular level. So it makes this cell stick to that cell and put these three cells together and they end up in this shape. And then obviously you have the cells. And so with bioprinting, where a normal printer uses ink, a 3D printer will use a more specialized ink or polymer, bioprinting combines those two in what they call a bioink, which is the cells, the protein, the structure, everything those cells are gonna need to assume the new function and assume the new shape. However, there is one added step in bioprinting that the other systems typically don't have. And I like to use the story of the when is a pancake a pancake story talking about actually bioprinting. So when you bioprint, it's like pancake batter. So you have all the ingredients, they're all there. You can arrange it to make your smiley face, to make your Mickey Mouse, however you want to make your pancake, but nobody wants to eat a plate of batter. So what happens is after you arrange the cells and proteins and everything else, you have to put it in what's called a bioreactor. A bioreactor mimics nature in the apply the correct cues for chemical, electrical, mechanical, depending on the tissue, all those external stimuli that will actually help form a tissue, take the cells, get them to talk to each other, get them to grow together, get them to continue to multiply because we can never print with the same density that the human body has. It's simply our cell density is so high that we would never get a printer to do that. So 
you have to find some happy medium of how many cells is enough and then let it kind of fill in the gaps on its own. Mm -hmm. So that bioreactor process is really what turns the printed construct into a printed tissue or printed construct into a new chicken nugget. So, you know, it doesn't matter which, what your end goal is, you know, if you want a fully formed, you know, tissue, whether that's an edible tissue or biological transplant tissue, you have to have some process to let it grow and mature and put all the right cues into it. You know, the same way the womb puts all the right cues in when a baby is developing, you know, a bioreactor just kind of speeds up that process in a much more defined, smaller space to say, hey, this is what it needs. And let's get from A to B. And let's say now maybe three weeks instead of nine months. It sounds like you just described an easy bake oven is what I. It is. What... It's uh, right. It's uh, you know, if, if all goes well, uh, you know, everyone on the outside will see an easy bake oven and uh, it'll be have an engineer that's pulled all his hair out next to it, you know, <laughs> making that oven easy, <laughs> bringing out the easy and the easy bake. Okay. Yeah. The engineer in my case was my little sister wondering why the pies were coming out the size of a quarter and then seeing her brothers with batter all over their face because it maybe not all the material made it all the way through mm -hmm. the, uh, the cooking process. Um, yeah, I think you're, I think your uh, sister needs some quality control. There seems to be a, a supply chain issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when you describe the bioreactor, one of the things that caught my imagination in your previous talk, Gene, was um, this idea or the notion of um, taking it to space. Like one of the, I, one of the reasons I think, correct me, uh, please, or fill in the uh, rest of the details that you're originally talking to NASA was there's an attraction to doing uh, printing in uh, low earth orbit or um, you know something other than down here on the ground because there's a benefit to creating structure, whether it's food or organs or whatever. I didn't understand that entirely. Can you, as you think about this bioreactor and the need to get it in space, why is it other than serving a client like NASA and other space exploration organizations, why, why is there a need to uh, create or a want to create some of this in space as opposed to here on earth? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great question. It was really kind of uh, central to uh, you know a lot of the effort we were putting in. So you know, space, low Earth orbit, microgravity, however you want to look at it, um, has some distinct advantages that we knew from even back to shuttle era science experiments. That one, stem cells keep their stemness or their ability to self multiply and maintain an undifferentiated state longer in microgravity. So that's one big thing. So we can kind of fill in the gaps between the cells. Two, without gravity, you know, you can print that hollow structure. Like a lot of our organs have big open areas. You can print that without having to put a scaffold on the inside. So on the ground, you know, all those big overhangs have to have some other structure to hold them up uh, because otherwise they would collapse on themselves, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be, you know, bioinks or even other 3D printed. You know, they can't just cantilever over open space very far without being supported. If you think about it as your bridge, you know, eventually you need a buttress to hold it up. Mm -hmm. Same thing in 3D printing, that you have to have that structure. And if you look at it for a tissue, you know, I don't necessarily, you know, it's it's one thing to be able to like, you know, strip that, you know, strip those um, braces and other pieces away after you, you know, 3D print uh, whatever you're printing on the ground. But I'd rather not open up a heart after we print it 
to tear out everything to hold the ventricle open and then have to put it back together mm. or have to put a, a harsh chemical in there to dissolve those struts and then hope that they don't affect the cells. Mm. So that's one advantage that gravity has is that, you know, things simply just don't fall over. You know, there's no, there is no weight, only mass. So, you know, things won't collapse upon themselves. You can let surface tension drive it. So you just have to get your cells and inks to stick together and then they won't fall and you can create those open areas. You know, the third aspect of it is um, something we learn with bioprinting on the ground. And that is to make those inks thick enough on the ground, we have to add non-biological components. So we either have to add cross-linking agents that um, think of it as your you know, two-part epoxy. It's the second part that is the thickening to make it stronger. It's, so you get that limited working time and then you get a stiff structure at the end. Well, those stiff structures prevent cells from moving around through it. So all the tissues in our body, cells can freely move through. They can migrate through there and they can change as they need it and modify their environment. If we add obstructions to those processes, tissues won't turn out the way they were supposed to. Mm -hmm. And the third big thing, and this is kind of, you know, that aha revolutionary moment in, you know, 3D printing is that most of what we call 3D printing on the ground is two and a half D printing. And by that, what I mean is you print X and Y, and then you step Z, you print X, Y, you step Z, you're printing it layer by layer. Mm -hmm. so, you know, I don't know if you've uh, taken a lot of biology, but you know, if you, if you dissect an organ, you don't see a lot of layers, you know, you right. see continuums. Right. And so now by going to space, we can actually say, let's print three dimensional structures, which means I can move in, you know, if you use Cartesian coordinates, I can move at X, Y, and Z simultaneously to make a connection from point A to point B and really change the whole paradigm of 3D printing to actually bring out the 3D nature of it. Mm -hmm. And the last piece with that 3D printing, um, kind of an un unintended consequence that we found was if you get rid of these cross-linking agents and thickening agents and everything that we all got accustomed to using bioprinting on the ground, layers fuse. So if you've ever looked at anything that's been 3D printed on the ground, all the plastic parts and everything else, mm -hmm. you can see the ridges, you can see the striations. So you can you can definitely tell it was printed layer by layer. Right. And if you look at it, you can probably tell the orientation it was printed, um, you know, mostly optimized mathematically to uh, reduce the amount of supports necessary or reduce the overall material. When you print with a low enough viscosity, again, surface tension takes over and those layers fuse together. So the cells in those layers don't sediment because they're not experiencing gravity and can freely move throughout the whole structure because all of a sudden what you printed is a solid now and not a layered solid. Hmm. So all of those reasons showed great promise of why microgravity could be that big step in tissue printing that we are never able to, uh, you know, never able to solve on the ground. You know, and that kind of holds through to food too because, you know, you're looking at a mouthfeel, you're looking at that consistent texture all the way through. You know, most people like and don't like food more because of texture than because of flavor. So if you don't get the texture right, it's not going to be appealing. So maybe by printing it and have it printed into a solid and be able to add those components where you need it. So, you know, the fats are where you think they need to be, the solid protein tissue, the cells are all where they need to be to get the right mouthfeel that's when you can say this tastes like home. How did they 
come up with the, not the idea of 3D printing, but um, the idea of how to, you know, this is, this could be viable by getting it into a, a you know, microgravity, low earth orbit, whatever environment, you know, it's in it, because you introduce more complexity, obviously, yeah. if you, if you put it in, why not do it at the bottom of the ocean? Um, you know, to, to get it up there, do you, in our business, and technology, heck, even in racing, you see it all the time now to create digital twins. So I create a, a model of something um, and bring physics to it and, you know, weather modeling, uh, I'm designing a race car, whatever. I build these models, I build the environment that it's going to operate in. And then I begin experimenting and I can change over, you know, the um, thermodynamics of something. I could change the, the weather, whatever, all these various elements. Did, did they start with this experiment? on a computer before they um, put it into the bioreactor and took it to space? Or how did the experimentation and sort of the trial and error before we do the big investment of getting it out of, um, you know, getting it up into low earth orbit? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I would say for some of it, the simulation software is lagging behind. Mm. So, you know, we tried using simulation software to understand what it's going under. But most of that software is very difficult to take things like convection out of it, take things like gravity out of the equation. You know, you can start to, you know, start to ignore some of those, but most simulation software is driven by boundary conditions. And when your boundary condition is more poorly defined as it is in microgravity mm. or driven by surface tension rather than, you know, mass rather than weight, um, it really it stresses some of the, the models that we are capable of doing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can iterate it to some extent on the ground to try to understand. And then the next step, you know, that we used was to take it to a parabolic aircraft. So, you know, parabolic aircraft gives you bursts of, you know, 20 to 30 seconds of microgravity on these big parabolic loops that, mm -hmm. you know, we were flying over the Gulf of Mexico as not to uh, risk crashing into anyone's house. Right. <laughs> And, um, you know, you'd say it's like, well, what can you 3D print in 29 seconds? Well, you'd be surprised. You know, you can really optimize to understand key mechanical properties, key functions. So you can look, we are looking at things like bridging. So how far can you make a 150 micron bead extend between two posts to understand what happens when these are fully, you know, fully un- or uh, kind of fully unstructured when you're printing to say what's going to happen because you know all the other properties are still going to exist you're still going to have surface tension you'll still have some resonance frequency if you're moving it and other forces can be imparted on this that you just aren't thinking about so this is a kind of a you know i would say you know versus low earth orbit it's a low cost way to uh, kind of test the proof of concept mm -hmm. you know and you know, as you're, you know, familiar with in technology, it goes through what I jokingly call the four stages of technology. You know, first, everyone's telling you that's impossible. Right. The second stage of, yeah, I think I've heard of that. You know, the third stage of, yeah, I think I know somebody who uh, invented that to the final stage of we've always known that. Right. So, uh, you know, and that's about the time that you get approval to fly is once it reaches that we've always known that stage. <laughs> so right. you, But the other cool part with NASA lately um, and the way that the ISS program is being run is they're less risk averse 
than the NASA that we all remember as kids. Mm-hmm. You know, the failure is no option. Apollo era is now fail fast and try again. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different approach. And now they said, okay, you don't have to have this fully defined. You don't have to have all the bugs worked out. Let's fly this and then we'll fly it again. And then we'll fly it again. And then we'll fly it again because the access to space is better than it's ever been. The cost is coming down and it really allows you to iterate. But iterating means you have to be smart on how you're iterating and be smart on the tools that you're sending to space. The more you can do and leave it in space and iterate, the more the better chance you have of finding success and that's kind of expanded across all the engineering fields whether it be machine vision motion control you know ai which i like to refer to as augmented intelligence rather than artificial intelligence because mm-hmm. i don't want to take the human out of the loop mm-hmm. i just want to make the human in the loop better mm-hmm. you know it's uh you know we all use google on a daily basis because we don't want to remember or our smartphones because you know I don't know anyone anymore that remembers, you know, the 150 phone numbers that it's in their phone. Yeah. Right. A generation ago, I would have asked my dad and he probably would have told me 150 phone numbers. Right. <laughs> Today I'm lucky I know my wife's. <laughs> right. Or he would have told you the eight the names of the eight streets you need to drive on to get to a grandparent's house or a whatever, right? You go here, exactly. you take this exit, you know all these things and now it's, you know, Google, you know, it's where my kids got their degree from Google, you know, right? Yeah, exactly. But it's, you know, it's interesting, because it's, you know, it's the adaptation of that technology, that I think is making us better scientists. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as as we've all seen in a number of different things, you know, there's, there's more data out there than we can ever possibly digest. Right. But you know, human intelligence is now going to be able to sift is going to be able to, can we sift through that technology? Can we sift through that information? to put the pieces together, to make new conclusions, to make new advances. And I think that's, you know, the augmented nature and that we really need because, you know, these systems have to be able, especially in low earth orbit, they have to have some level of autonomy because astronaut time is very expensive. You know, I was not invited to go up and use my own printer, (laughs) no matter how much I uh, petitioned that, Hey, I think I should be the one pushing the buttons. Uh, You know, NASA and my wife both decided, no, that wouldn't be a good idea. Yeah, not a great idea. Um, what When you were talking earlier about flying the the parabolic loops, was that what actors call the vomit rocket or something like the that? Vomit that, comet, yeah. Vomit comet, yeah. yeah. Um, so when you uh, so when you did when you did something like that, did people from uh, you, do do you instruct? astronauts or you know folks from nasa on how to operate the machinery or do you put your own people in there and say good luck here's your throw up bag yep we put our own people in there so uh you know myself and four of my team members that developed the system uh you know bolted our printer down in the uh in the belly of a 737 and uh you know said okay let's uh let's go and not what was that like it is a it's an interesting experience. It's kind of, uh, it's your, if you took your favorite roller coaster and then you put it underwater. Mm. So there's no high G impacts. There's no, but you still have that, you know, your wait list and then you have a high G pullout. And what the funny thing is, is, you know, going in, I was thinking, oh, the weightlessness is what's going to make me sick. It's mm. really that 2G pullout on the bottom of it. 
uh, without having, you know, this is an aircraft without any windows. Mm. So, you know, which is probably good because you're going at really weird angles and you'd probably uh, freak yourself out if you, uh, if you saw how close you were going to straight down. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was a 2G pullout, which one of my lead engineers was very grateful that I didn't get sick because we actually had to do most of our work during that 2G pullout. And the uh, folks at Zero G who we flew with said, yeah, you're going to get sick if you do anything during the 2G pullout. They said, just sit still and look straight ahead, find a spot on the wall and stare at it during the high G parts. And we're like, yeah, that's not an option. Right. And they're like, okay, well, make sure that when you throw up, you keep it in your bag. So I'm happy to say that my team didn't throw up. And uh, like I said, one of my lead engineers was super excited because I was working over the top of him during right. those high G pullouts. So uh, <clears throat> if I would have uh, maybe not kept my breakfast, it would have gone down the back of his flight suit. <laughs> Yeah, that would have been an interesting story. I don't know what the benefit to the experiment would have been, but it'd be a great story. Yeah, it's uh, what it would have been is uh, chief scientist lost on mission. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so when when you describe this, uh, and I'm trying to uh, describe the the, you know, I've got a bioreactor, and I've got um, you know, so far we've described sort of the X, the Y, and the Z. These nozzles for lack of a better word these things that are injecting substances whatever that combination of substances is help, help me to get my imagination around that now i have seen combinatorial uh peptide making machines where they've got you know all these banks of amino acids mm -hmm. and they'll go through and they they make peptides you know it's not particularly exciting you know what's going yeah. on down in there in the test tubes they're attaching them to a polymer they're building a peptide and then later they you know, kind of wash them off and away they go. Most of the big pharmaceutical companies use these to test, you know, and create different products and, and um, medicines and stuff. So when you, when, when the machine's hooked up and it's ready to go, and it's something that's not particularly complex. I say that as we talk about creating tissue, you know, almost right. um, 50, a couple hundred years ago, it's magic. 500 years ago, you're a God, you know, if you talk about doing stuff like this. So that that sort of tongue in cheek aside, is this? Do I have six, eight, ten different chemicals or material that I'm working with, and it's selecting from a variety of these? Is it three of them? Like a, you know, in my printer at home, I've got black, green, blue, and purple, or magenta, cayenne, and yellow, whatever they call them. You know, there's there's four inks that they use. How many for a not terribly complex structure? Um, materials do you think we're usually working with? So, so we worked with four. Okay. And and those four, you know, we had them, you know, we had we could print with four inks at the same time. Um, our printer had four heads. Okay. Um, but of those four inks, we had a number of different, a number of different combinations, a number of different cell type and protein blends. Mm. So, you know, to get four inks we probably sent, you know, 16 cell types and 12 base protein polymer mixes to space and had the astronauts iterate. So for us, uh, we were kind of a combination manual automated process. So our inks were sent up uh, component wise. So we could send the cells frozen and everything else refrigerated. And then we would be like, okay, take syringe, you know, one and seven with ink bag three 
mix it and put that one into the syringe on pen one. Mm. And then, you know, similarly say, okay, now let's take these, you know, this cell and this ink and put it in two and so on and so forth. So that, uh, you know, we were trying to print cardiac muscle. So we had both mature and immature uh, cardiac muscle cells. We had nerve cells, we had vascular cells, and then we had one ink that was acellular that in case we needed uh, to provide any external structure. And for our case, we were using that external structure kind of as a surface pinning. Because mm-hmm. as I said, you know, there's, there's no weight, but it's surface tension driven. And if you've ever watched, you know, water or anything else, beat up on multiple surfaces sometimes it spreads sometimes it stays where it is you know that's a surface driven phenomenon same thing happens in microgravity and that's actually the dominant force so sometimes we just said okay we have to put we have to put something here to stop the ink just from running off the plate how Um, hard is that that seems like a crazy that's actually where the hardest part of the whole process is because you're looking at you know, the surface energy difference of a sharp corner versus a rounded corner of this polymer versus this metal versus this ceramic, and really trying to blend all of those so that your surface tension can be matched. There's a couple of really brilliant folks that uh, have been working for NASA now independently for for a number of years that can provide that consulting service Mm. and have some really cool modeling and they do some of their testing on a drop tower. So, you know, they get it in, you know, one and a half seconds instead of going in a plane, they just drop it five stories through a, uh, a really much more sophisticated empty elevator shaft. But it really is just kind of that idea of dropping something down an elevator shaft to see what happens in the, uh, in the split second between uh, when it hits terminal velocity and when it hits the bottom, <laughs> um, just to really understand material interactions. And so, that was probably honestly the most complicated part. Um, at the end of the day, the biology was the easier part, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, you know, it's, it's great that we have so much to uh, lean on in uh, wound healing and developmental biology that I can say that was the easy part. Right. Um, but, you know, the fluid physics and microgravity, you know, while it's been studied for, you know, since, you know, the early, early stages of even, you know, mercury uh, missions and even pre- with redstone rockets and everything else to understand how fuels mix when they get to microgravity, I would say we're probably only about 85% of the way there of truly understanding all the fluid physics in microgravity and having those models. So kind of goes back to that simulation question earlier mm-hmm. is, you know, your simulation is only as good as your driving factors. And if you don't know all the rules, it's hard to make a great simulation. Remind me, uh, you might've said it, but I don't, I don't remember. It escapes me how large, for experiments would this um bioreactor be and and the assembled you know components of it yeah so yeah i didn't mention it but our our bioreactor that we were using was based on really about a two and a half by two and a half by three and a half centimeter um block mm-hmm. which may sound really small but understanding that you know, on the ground you know a typical printed tissue or printed organoid is about two millimeters thick because that's as thick as we can print and keep it alive on the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, we were, um, you know, approaching uh, insanely ambitious beyond a little crazy ambitious, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, 
taught early on, you know, swing for the fences and, uh, and accept the double. That's right. kind of the uh, mentality that we took for, uh, you know, for doing this. So we still probably wouldn't make a great, you know, big leaguer these days because, you know, the strikeout is pretty popular also. So we wanted to avoid the strikeout. <laughs> I love those big leaguers. We're we're celebrating. I love all baseball uh, metaphors, these or analogies these days, because we're sitting here with a world championship uh, trophy here in Atlanta. So uh, yeah, I love yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep them rolling. I love it. Um, but it, you know, it just reminds me. There are a few times when uh, a couple of the guys that hit, they were praying, "Please let that be a home run," because I don't want to run that hard. You know, uh, baseball players, some of them anyway, are built like me. I'm pretty good getting to first, but I really don't want to have to run hard to. I have no trouble turning a uh, triple into a single. That's kind of my speed. Yeah, I'm yep, right there. Uh, yeah, right there with you. Uh, you know, played uh, played quite a bit, and uh, you know, watched even more. You know, and I will admit that you know I'm I am a deep fan of the <clears throat> Evil Empire, so I was a little disappointed in our uh, postseason this year. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> it's all right. There's always next year, right? Take it from exactly. the. Uh, the the cubs there's always next year right um so as you're as we're talking through this and i'm thinking about it um you know a lot of us that imagine i don't know that we would have imagined it would be called 3d printing food mm -hmm. but i'm a big fan of all things science fiction uh you know whether it's uh clark or asimov or you know whoever heinlein uh, Star Trek, Star Wars, uh, Lost in Space. Give me some good old Dr. Smith and Lost in Space. But they could walk over, uh, you know, and and open the, uh, what we would now call microwave door, the oven door. You know, they just push three buttons and they open it up. And here comes my fully formed cheeseburger with lettuce and tomato and bun and onion and meat and all the ingredients. And then the next person walk, walks up and gets their yogurt and the next person walks up and you know gets their yard bird or whatever yeah um that sounds like a wildly different experience than i need to put all of these chemicals together sure. some amount of time not moments but uh, more time um a careful construction additive process is going to happen and at the end of it you're going to have something about the size of a chicken nugget, maybe smaller. Um, how, how, which is still, if you think about it, unbelievably remarkable. We're so, we're so, we have so much access to technology and really almost supernatural things happening in front of us that we're sort of like, oh, so you can only print food, you know, the size of my thumbnail. Like that doesn't seem exactly. like a big deal. You're printing food. What are you talking right. about? But, but, with that in mind, how, you know, if I were to make a, um, maybe not even a meal, just something significant to really, mm, I'm going to eat this and it's going to be on a pancake and it's going to satisfy me. Uh, how far away are we from doing that? And how long would it take, assuming you've got the science and the technology to do it, to assemble something like that? Are we, is that days to build that? Is it hours? Is it months? How long would it take to build something? Um, so... Yeah, the initial assembly probably in in hours. The maturation to make it feel like something that's familiar, uh, days to weeks. Um, you know, there's uh, you know there's some great work being done. Like I said, on you know on the ground right now in the in the printable food and the you know cultured meat world mm -hmm. is really kind of 
moving that forward, a lot of them are still doing, you know, grow up the cells and then essentially mold it into what you want. So you don't necessarily have that maturation process where you have that, you know, stringy texture of, you know, the stringy texture of chicken that you can peel it out or where you do get more of the, you know, McNugget than the tender. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think that's where, yeah, I think that's where the, you know, state of the art is right now on the ground. Mm-hmm. But I think we can, uh, you know, I think we're pretty close to being able to, you know, print that, you know, granted that, you know, all these additional processes, you know, come at a cost, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, early on, you know, first hamburger that was, uh, you know, lab grown hamburger, probably a $50,000 hamburger and probably didn't taste better than a dollar cheeseburger. Right. But that $50,000 hamburger is now, you know, is now down to maybe a thousand dollars a pound, which still seems crazy, but that's a huge reduction in a really short amount of time. And that's the timeline that we're on. And we need to kind of keep pushing those envelopes. So, you know, printing one chicken strip at a time, probably not the inevitable answer, Mm -hmm. but we can't get to the answer until we get past the one chicken strip at a time. Right. So, uh, you know, we have to, uh, you know, embrace the incremental nature and understand, you know, where, where is revolution and where is evolution. And it's Mm -hmm. probably a trade-off back and forth that you take the revolutionary step and then you go through a lot of evolutionary processes and then you can find the next revolutionary step. And that's kind of, we thought we got, you know, kind of the, the shortcut on the, uh, you know, the cheat code on the map saying, hey, let's go to microgravity. And maybe we can shortcut all of these processes and, uh, and kind of leapfrog of where this technology can be. And honestly, I think some of those technologies can then come back to Earth saying, oh, this is what we learned doing it in microgravity. Okay, I think we can simulate some of that and uh, keep those processes going on the ground so that you know, not only astronauts and space colonies and Elon Musk and his uh, and all of the people that he's going to bring on Starship to uh, mm-hmm. to Mars to live out uh, their you know their happy uh, happy existence on his Mars retirement. Um, right. You know, I think there's I think there's a benefit for the rest of us. And and one area that we looked at is, you know, what does space have that's similar with places on the ground? You know, it's an austere location. It has a horrible supply chain. It has limited refrigeration and storage. Well, you know, that's every inner city grocery store. Right. You know, I was going to say that's Little Rock, but I'm, right. I'm with you. That's, <laughs> you know, that's every mountain town community. That's every village in, you know, on the African plain or in Southeast Asia. These are all austere locations that can all benefit from this technology. So if we can remotely control a printer to print food, that's orbiting above us, you know, we showed uh, with a collaboration with Department of Defense that you can also print a tissue sitting in a container that was dropped in a remote area in Africa. Right. So, you know, that kind of opens up and says, hey, maybe this technology can address, you know, if we really do pursue the food angle, maybe this technology can address, you know, food deserts, can address austere locations without access to fresh and safe foods and really look at how, how this benefits the masses and not just, you know, the 1% of the 1% that's ever going to go to space. Right. Um, a quick comment and then a question. 
when you were um, talking there about where you are in the evolutionary slash revolutionary cycle, recently I had a guest on um, Azim Azar, who's written a book called The Exponential Age. It's it's a really good book. Others are similar to it. I really enjoyed his because he uh, he walked through a number of topics that are near and dear to my heart: the evolution of cities and cybersecurity, just a variety of things raised some really good points, put them in really common language. But one of the things he talked about that sort of making this exponential age, and that's, this is a, he would call this an exponential technology is this combination of Moore's law and Wright's law. Moore's law, you know, if you go back into the fifties, a transistor cost IBM about a thousand bucks a pop today, they're nano size transistors, and we have billions of them in our phones in their exponentially less expensive and exponentially more powerful. And so, and so we're on this, you know, these technologies are on this path to your point about it was a $50,000 hamburger at this point in time. And now it's um, one fiftieth of that cost or one one hundredth of that cost, depending upon how you measure it. And in five years now, and it's an ex, you know, it's an exponential curve, just like compounding interest. Right. So that's my comment. It sounds like it's right in there. The other is, um, I had someone on, um, uh, Jennifer Wilde, who worked, uh, she was having this conversation about the need to change how we innovate in some ways it was don't fail small anymore, fail big. And she walks through what she means by that. Mm-hmm. And an example she gave me, or at least it's kind of lived with me. She worked for many, she's in the private sector now, but she worked for many years in humanitarian aid. And she gave a, um, a, she told a story that really, um, I think about it all the time, about several hundred thousand people that are living in a um, refugee camp in the Syrian desert. They can't go back home to a war-torn country over by the Mediterranean. I'm, they're surrounded on all sides and they're just sort of stuck. And she said, so we don't want a more efficient cardboard box to ship them a meal. We want to figure out how we do food better for them. We want to figure out how to do education differently so that their children, you know, once human beings lose hope, they become spectacularly dangerous. If I have no hope, um, I'm either very dangerous to myself or I'm very dangerous to the community around me. As long as we have hope, um, we, we do well. We know that from prisoner of war, um, survivors, we, in a million different ways. And as you're describing this, um, I had made a note to ask you later in the conversation, but it was a great point to talk about it. You know, how can we leverage the technology that we're u- learning in a violent, difficult environment like space that is not prone to human flourishing? We have to carve out a human environment in that environment. But it reminds me of undersea exploration, desert communities, the communities that you've talked about, long you know, if you go on uh, ocean void, like all sorts of wherever it's, these environments are very difficult, if not Im- almost impossible for humans to flourish in. And here's a technology that as we get better at it um, and, and we can make it compact and, you know, safe, easy to operate, affordable, et cetera, um, we can greatly impact um, the ability for human beings to adapt to these other areas or even flourish if they're in a area that doesn't lend itself to that. Yeah, no, that's it's exactly right. It's uh, you know, it, it kind of goes back to the you know the age old question that people have is why on earth 
does the government spend so much money in space? Mm. What benefit has NASA ever provided me? Mm. And I don't think people necessarily realize how much benefit NASA really has provided them. <clears throat> and, you know, governments are never great at explaining benefit. You know, cost benefit has never been, you know, never been a strength of any government that I've ever met. Mm-hmm. But now with a lot of the privatization in space, you know, they spend half their time explaining that value proposition, you know, whether they have to explain it to investors, whether they explain it to get people excited and move forward. So I think we're really going to see a pivot to public awareness of, you know, the trickle down technology and the expanded role of these technologies, you know, originally built in the you know, space community, but so broadly applicable to human suffering everywhere. Mm-hmm. So we can, you know, pivot from the risk of being an explorer to the risk of not living in a great U.S. urban center. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think uh, I think we really need. You know, I think we've done a disservice to uh, the American populace to date mm-hmm. on showing them where they're uh, the benefits of those dollars. Because you know, I think uh, I think some of that space spending has had more of an impact in the American populace, you know, per dollar of spending in NASA's budget than many other government programs and even some social programs. So, you know, I think, um, I think we need to do kind of a better job of, uh, of translating, you know, space nerd science into Joe on the corner technology. And, you know, how is, you know, how is what I'm doing circling the earth you know, 200 miles above us with a crazy expensive printer, how is that going to impact, you know, the guy begging for money on the corner on the side of the highway? And honestly, I think there is a way that it's going to benefit, um, you know, those people on the corner, underprivileged areas and everything else. And, um, you know, tying it together is what kept me in the space industry, you know, for, for as long as it, as long as it did, Mm -hmm. Um, just really understanding that, you know, this, you know, these trickle down technologies really do trickle down. I completely agree. I've seen it. Uh, I work in technology. I've got family that have been around it. Um, it's pretty, um, it's pretty astounding. Uh, coming back to food for a second, when you, you know, obviously we have this great historical document, um, the Martian, yep. love the book, love That's the movie. <laughs> and, um, uh, Watney loved himself some potatoes. So when we talk about making food, are all foods on the table? Or are we talking about what my kids are addicted to while they go to college, um, ramen, which has zero nutritional value, but they pour in enough soy sauce, add eggs, chives or whatever, and they fool themselves to thinking that this is, uh, this is good for them. When, when we think about it, are some foods easier to make than others? Um, are some more nutritionally viable? How, how when you imagine um, the idea of making printing food, is there something that we start off with and we move to complexity, or how does that work? So, yeah, that's a it's kind of great question, uh, and I think you're right. We move we move to complexity, mm. and we embrace early that yeah, this isn't a a one-size-fits-all solution. You know, 3D printed food has a very specific niche that it's going to exist in. And that part of that is um, high-density proteins. 
Mm. Part of that is a high density protein with a specific mouthfeel. You know, it's never going to be as cheap or as easy as um, algae or some other, you know, nutritious, but man, maybe not quite as tasty right. uh, solutions that are out there. But it's all going to be, you know, as uh, to quote the old food board, it's all going to be part of our healthy breakfast. Right. Um, you know, it's it's the only way that Kellogg sold the story of, uh, you know, cornflakes is you put you put a lot of other healthy foods together and then it can be part of a healthy breakfast. Right. And, uh, so, you know, I think this is going to be part of a solution, um, you know, 3D printing. You know, I, I like to look at it um, early in my college career. I worked in the machine shop. Uh, this was late 90s, right at the beginning of, you know, CNC. So computerized uh, milling. Mm -hmm. We were very, very proud. We had a big CNC mill in our shop. Most of it, most everything was manual. Every single person that came into the shop looking to do work, we brought over and showed them our CNC mill. Mm. Probably not even 5% of the jobs were ever going to run on that mill, mm -hmm. but it's what got them in the door. Mm. I think that's part of what 3D printing and food is going to be. It's going to get people excited. It's going to get people to notice the field and it's going to provide a really excellent 5% solution. Mm. Um, but, you know, the rest of it is going to be the hard work of, you know, botanists to learn, you know, can you really, can you really create that potato field on Mars? It's going to be work in other plants to say, how do we increase the edible portion and reduce the waste? So, you know, how do you make a four inch tomato plant produce as many tomatoes as an 18 inch tomato plant? How do you, you know, how do you have added nutrients and, you know, people get scared of genetic engineering, but, you know, how do you have those plants and everything else that can produce what you need to survive in a shortened development cycle in a smaller footprint with less nutrients? Because if it takes too many nutrients, you know, it's, it's calorie in calorie out, even in the farming world. So, you know, I can't, I can't use, you know, the 500 calorie equivalent to produce a 10 calorie food. It would never work in space. It'll never work in, uh, in any other food desert in the planet. So, you know, we really have to understand the efficiency, picking the right plants, picking the right proteins and picking the right things to combine so that you can A, sustain life, but B, sustain a life that you want to have. You know, yeah, that seems to be missing sometimes. It's that whole want to have. It's, you know, we, we know how to make nutrients that will keep you alive. Just after a while, you may not want to stay alive having just those nutrient supplements. Yes, having eaten many MREs when I was in the service, you know, in the beginning, it's novel and it's yeah. fun. 150 MREs later, um, you know, you, you've exhausted every combination of cooking them on top of your the diesel of your track or the, you know, the fire that you're near, or, you know, if you're in a um, combat zone or whatever, you're not doing any of those things, right? And you can only uh, squeeze so many peanut butter out of the little packet or whatever it is, you know, it all looks the same. It just has different names on the package. Right. So I get in, uh, in the data center business, I know that they have um, one of the things they think about is this thing called PUE, power utilization efficiency. And the, the simple concept is, is if, if I consume or if I draw from the power grid, a watt of power, how, 
um, how much of that is lost in the infrastructure before I turn it over to power the computers? So in other words, I've got a whole big building full of computers and it took me um, a thousand watts to power them. How many watts did I draw from the power grid to power that? Mm-hmm. Is it um, uh, 1.2 or 1.4? In other words, I drew 1.3 watts to spend one watt and I lost that two or you know, 0. 0.2, 0. 0.3 in the meantime, just because of the nature of stepping down power and moving it around infrastructure, et cetera. When you think about that, whether it's it's the material that you're using, you were talking about calories in and calories out. I've got enough matter here for 10, you know, I'm starting with 10 calories of matter when I'm done and the product's completed and it's ready to be consumed, or we're just calling it complete in this experiment. Mm-hmm. Is that typically five calories? It's nine calories on the platter. It's two calories. And I know we're on a, we're on a journey of um, one, let's get it made Two, yep. let's get it to where it has the right nutrient density and these other things. It's, it's, it's what we intended it to be. And then three, when all said and done, I guess, how much did it cost for us in terms of resources and power and matter and whatever to generate this thing? We talk about that a lot in, um, um, especially in energy, if we're going to renewable energy, how much does it cost us to make the solar platforms or the windmill or whatever? How much does it cost to operate them? Um, what's the loss between collecting the energy and getting it to the site? I mean, we got to go through the whole cost of, you know, of this to generate a watt of renewable power. And then is it, so is it beneficial to the environment? Is this, are we accomplishing what we set out to accomplish? When you think about that in this world of um, printing food, where are we at on that chain? Are we efficient yet? Are we, are we actually create, you know, we're spending 10 calories worth of material to get five calories, or is that just something they're just not thinking about yet? They're definitely thinking about it. And, you know, we're probably at the spend 10, get one and a half. Okay. But on the flip side of that is, you know, the rest of agriculture kind of as we know it in food production, as we know it mm-hmm. is very open loop. So, you know, this is probably the first time that people are starting to look at, you know, closed loop food production. And granted, there's a lot of people that are that talk about, you know, closing the loop on, you know, on how inefficient it is to, you know, raise cattle, how inefficient it is to, you know, cut rainforests and plant corn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's people looking at the question, but it really hasn't entered into you know, my trip to the grocery store yet. You know, there's there's big thinkers, there's a lot of ideas that are floating out there, but it hasn't changed what the shelf at my grocery store looks like yet. So, you know, we have we have a gap to close there and to understand whether, you know, whether you want to get into as a, you know, pure entropy question, whether you want to get this into, you know, into energy plus ethics and everything else, you know, I think we have to start closing some of these loops to understand where we are so when we closed the printed food loop mm-hmm. everyone's like oh my god that's so inefficient but you know we're comparing it to you know existing century-old open loop methods that we really don't have close accounting for how much energy it really took to make you know to make that one pound bag of uh, bag of hamburger that is uh, that is sitting uh, you know at the grocery store and selling for two dollars 
Right. You know, is that is that really a two dollar investment in that, or is there some some costs that we as society are paying beyond that two dollars? That in cellular agriculture we're asking to pay the whole to foot the whole bill versus letting you know the environment, letting other you know other programs eat some of that cost. It also strikes me as, you know, if you spend any time in a, any kind of a closed system, space, submarine, um, you know, um, even uh, specialized combat units in the military or whatever, are these very, like, everything you take in, um, everything that you go in with into theater. So if I were a soldier, I'm taking my water, I'm taking my food, I'm taking my clothing, I'm taking my medicine, my ability to heal myself, I'm taking my um, uh, weapon, my ammunition, like all of this. And I've got to, you know, usually I have to collect whatever the waste is, I have to bring it with me, I can't leave any trace I've got, for whatever reason, there's a variety of reasons. And those are always more expensive and more difficult than just, you know, living in a temperate climate, and I've got all this space and whatever to operate. So with that as a backdrop, um, it, you know, I think there should always be an expectation. We're talking about um, working in an extreme and unusual environment. It's it is much. Uh, it's yeah. usually not very efficient compared to a, an open. To your point about open loop agriculture or whatever, and there's also, <clears throat> um, you know, we have millennia of experience in um, in some of this industry, and this is. This is brand new. We're bringing these disparate um, environments together and trying to create a new thing. Uh, so it's, I don't know, it's really curious uh, to me how that works. And you, you were making this point earlier, there's almost a PR part of this um, job, which is what are the benefits of being explorers? What are the benefits to um uh, the human race, not just our citizens around us, but this, the rest of the citizens on this spaceship that's orbiting the sun. And, and how do we leverage that into, um, you know, things for good? I mean, I, I don't know why recently I was talking to somebody about um, uh, Katrina, the hurricane disaster a few decades ago. And, and the ability to, you know, if we had the ability to respond quickly somewhere in the world, like a New Orleans or whatever, where you can you can drop in self-contained units that are a temporary solution. They're not a long-term solution, but here's, I can, you know, the first goal is create food or be able to convert water or whatever to be safe so that you can survive while we work on the rescue mission or whatever it is. And hopefully at some point evolve it to where, um, you know, if we can, if we can start off with base materials and you can make some portion of your food at home, a la all science fiction movies ever, yeah. It's a fantastic impact on, um, and I'm not, I don't want to get down the, the fossil fuel conversation other than to say, if I'm not having to transport a bunch of stuff, I can make it locally, I can source locally, or I can just make it at home and it's equal to or greater than an efficiency. Those are the things I think in the long-term perspective of space, whatever it is, computers, uh, bioprinting of, of tissue or food or organs or whatever, um, this is a great benefit we should be keeping our eye on. Absolutely. You know, and that kind of hit a hit a point that, you know, with some of our discussions with the Department of Defense, I don't think anybody truly appreciates the cost of a gallon of fuel than the Department of Defense 
when they look at a cost of a gallon in theater. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why, you know, 3D printing, you know, DOD jumped on it faster than almost any other government agency and other in other groups because they're like, wait a second, if I can make this at the location in theater and not have to say, oh, I need to truck this part in. Oh, I need to, you know, whether it be 3D printed metal components to fix a generator or a water purification plant, or it's a 3D printed surgical tool to, uh, to aid a surgeon who lost a tool trying to save, you know, warfighter lives. Or if it is that, you know, the next level up when we start talking about the replacement augmentation repair tissues so that that warfighter keeps the leg instead of loses the leg, keeps the arm, or simply survives the, uh, survives the injury or illness. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really when you can start to understand the real cost of your supply chain is really, I think, what's going to start pushing, you know, 3D printing even more into the real mainstream. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's in the mainstream right now, but people think of it either as a toy or a tool for the very rich or the or a minority of people. And it is cool that it's evolved all the way. You know, the first time I used the 3D printer, it was with uh, Stratasys Corporation in the late 90s. And, you know, God forbid, we couldn't actually afford to buy one of those printers. So they only worked for a Fortune 100 company. Right. But I could have some parts made every so often. Um, to now, you know, I can go to Lowe's and order it on their website and get a, you know, $150 printer uh, to pick up a day or two later at Lowe's. Right. Like, you know, it's, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's in the course of my 30 year career. I can only, uh, I can only imagine what, uh, you know, kids coming out of college today, what their 30 year projection is going to look like. It's going to be, you know, it's going to have the same phenomenal uh, growth rate. Like you're talking, it's, you know, we're still living in uh, exponential technology. Right. To put it in perspective, I think I remember coming home from uh, airborne school, jump school uh, in 1984. I was back to L.A. My dad was working for IBM, still on the shuttle program. They were up in um, they were considering launching the shuttle from uh, Lompoc, which is right near Santa Maria. And uh, he had been down in near um, the Mojave Desert. We lived in a little mountain town down there where he could go out to Edwards uh, Air Force Base at the time. And it was the shuttle was assembled in Palmdale and other places anyway. And he I, he he said, I got a surprise. And I said, what's the surprise? You know, this is great. So we load up and we go to this um, store in the little strip mall near us called Computerland. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we picked up an IBM XT personal computer had dual floppy drives. My kids, this analogy is completely lost on them. They have no idea what a floppy drive. Is that like a memory stick? Get out of the room. What are you talking about? Dual floppy drives, um, a dot matrix printer that Gene, honestly, if that sucker went off today, we would initiate, um, you know, workplace shooter protocols. If they heard that thing going off in the office, people would be on the ground and rolling. Um, I want to say we had four colors on the screen. And when we played a wow. video game, it was, um, I, and the only reason I say that is, and maybe it was just two colors. I just remember we, we would play this game. We played it for the whole 30 days. I was on leave and it was a text-based game. You know, you, you enter the chamber, the wolf comes in the room and the wolf is flashing red. Right. And so here we are today. And this smartphone that I've got here is so many more times more powerful. In fact, I've got a couple of them 
then that machine, uh, I remember not long after that, uh, maybe four or five years later, I bought a, um, a my first computer because I could not, that was probably a $4,000 computer easily. And I remember when I bought mine and um, I called up my dad and said, you're not going to believe this. I've got a 40 megabyte hard drive. I think that's what it was, 40 or 80, I forget. <laughs> and my dad just laughed at me like, you're an idiot. Why would you buy a 40 megabyte hard drive. You'll never fill that thing. Right. That's crazy. Up, right. That's insane. So flash forward 37 years, which to young people seems like an eternity, but people that have lived those 37 years, you know, and that's not even the same kind of change as people that we know that came out of the great depression and went from automobiles being rare to, um, Every day, much less an air, you know, you didn't you fly in an airplane, they fell out of the sky to everyday commercial flight. Mm-hmm. It, it just seems to me that if we look at 30 years, in particular, with the exponential amount of technology that we have helping us build technology, that this really isn't, it wouldn't be surprising to me at all to find out that this is commonplace. I don't know, 10 years, 15 years, whatever it is from now, it's, I don't want to, I'm not near it. I don't want to label it, but the same way that every home, every office has a microwave, everybody has a, or, or has a, you know, something similar to a NIST thermostat or whatever. And you can just talk to your house and it will turn your coffee pot on and do these other things. Um, the engineering is, you know, significant in front of us, but it feels like um, we're on a strong path. And I'm wondering, is there an opportunity for like cocktails? So if I'm, we're, we're you know, if I'm somebody that needs to eat something and I'm on, recovery from something like COVID, or I've, I've been a, I've been in a car wreck or whatever. I need a different nutrient slurry than just your regular food. Um, seems, seems like there's an opportunity that this could be customized. Absolutely. So, you know, it's, you know, I think, I think honestly, that's probably the next big breakthrough is combining what we know about informatics and personalized medicine into a food program. So, you know, because what's right for me isn't right for you, isn't right for my wife, isn't right for, you know, somebody that's either, you know, training to run a marathon or, you know, recovering from a stomach bug. Mm-hmm. And, and we can start to really tailor, you know, what we need to both to survive and to thrive. And, you know, by doing so, I think we're going to take a big hit out of our, you know, out of our medical budget for this country. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, uh, we're not good at preventative medicine. Um, you know, there's, it's the old joke. There's no money in preventative. It's easier to, it's easier to spend money to fix it than to uh, spend money to prevent it. Um, probably where the rest of the world is starting to leave us behind. But, you know, maybe we can look at this as that, you know, as that revolutionary moment as other things are evolving. Let's take that revolution and move past just, you know, eating right and getting our, you know, annual checkups to having a really actual tailored food program and have those, you know, supplements and everything else, uh, both from a higher, higher quality source, but also tailored to what my body really needs based on what I'm doing, how I'm healing, how I'm functioning and what I want to, and how I want to function. So, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe the merge of, 3D printing, personalized medicine, you know, helps us uh, get that leapfrog going in preventative care. I, I hope so. I could not help though smiling when you were talking about that. It reminded me of um, 
one of my favorite subjects, which is bacon. My, mm-hmm. uh, I had an Internet of Things guy on here. He's been on a couple of times. His name is Steve Brummer. He's kind of a gen- genius guy, um, been in this space for a very long time. And one of the things that we enjoyed a conversation about was some of the mic- uh, microwaves that he's aware of, um, they have cameras in them. And so as you cook your food, the cameras uh, are watching, in this case, bacon, what's the texture look like, you know, they're, they've, they've got um, tools in there that are measuring um, the viscosity or whatever it is. Like, here's the, here's the doneness of the food that it's cooking. Here's the, here's how hard or how soft it is, like all these different measurements. And if you enjoy it, if you like it, if it tastes delicious, the microwave or whatever the cooking agent was recorded everything about that um, event. It, how much did you put in? What was the, um, what was the weight of it? What was the, um, you know, what was the size? What were the dimensions of it? What was the barometric pressure at what temperature for how long, how much did it rotate? All of these things. And so you tweak it to where you really enjoy. Well, wow, this is a, um, this is a, an experience that I love and I highly recommend it. And then you just publish your recipe and the microwave or the, whatever on the, you know, in the uh, group that you're part of, can receive the recipe. Oh, I like one of those. Not unlike 3D printing, you just enter the recipe and and it can either, you know, the more sophisticated ones down the road will be able to adjust. Well, if they're oven cooked at this speed, then here's how it would adjust. But for now, you could replicate the exact same um, experience and it will cook pretty darn close um, that same food experience and then you can iterate it and here it is spicy here it is my whatever and publish that and now you build this whole ecosystem of um recipes you can download to your device and it takes you just put in the ingredients and it takes over that's the big idea anyway yeah absolutely i mean it sounds uh yeah sounds like a, a fun and exciting future and then you know then your you know fridge is going to make sure you have those things stocked and uh yeah you know, we can you know, free, you know, use the Einstein theory of, you know, free your brain from the mundane to do the extraordinary. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, if I don't have to remember to go to the grocery store to get eggs and milk, maybe that thought power can be used to, you know, find a better protein blend, right. find a better way to assemble A and B, find a more efficient way to transfer power from a power line to a hard drive. You know, it's, uh, there's a lot of things that we could be thinking about if we didn't have to, you know, think about, you know, the routine mundane. Right. So what are you, I saw recently you've, uh, you're off to a new adventure. Yeah. What are, what are you doing now? So you're right. I kind of, you know, I pivoted, but didn't pivot. So, (laughs) you know, the story of my life was mechanical, um, medical devices, to tissue-based medical devices, to understanding the concept of the organ shortage, and then pivoting to wound healing and tissue printing and eventually organ printing. Mm -hmm. Well, I've kind of taken now a, what I would say a slight sidestep is still with an idea around, um, around the organ shortage, but now with a company that is looking at a way to improve tissue matching um, in our case, in our first process uh, for kidney transplant. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kidney transplant, you always talk about an HLA match level. So it's like, oh, you know, you need, you want the perfect 
six out of six or 10 out of 10, depending What's, on what is on. HLA for those who, I don't know what that is. Uh, yeah. Um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm blanking now on what it is. Well, not, what's, not necessarily the official phrase. Is that just your ability to uh, be compatible in a match? Yeah. So okay. it's, it's your tissue typing to make sure that, you know, your, okay. your blood is compatible. The tissues are compatible. You know, it's, it's a compatibility index okay. to make sure that, you know, it's, you know, I can't just give anybody a kidney that I have to give it to somebody compatible. Right. You know, what our company is looking at is, Hey, maybe we don't have to make it quite as compatible and we find a way with a cell therapy that we can get you off the immunosuppressants because those immunosuppressant drugs are really what kill transplant patients. Mm. So, you know, your kidney doesn't die in 10 to 15 years because the kidney you got wasn't that great and was only going to last 10 or 15 years. It's because, you know, you're taking 20 pills a day to try to make sure that your body doesn't try to, you know, shut it down and ship it out. Right. Um, but what the company that I'm with now is like, what if there's a better way? What if we can now produce what's called a immune system chimera, um, you know, going to the ancient Greek. So we're trying to make a twin. So right. what if we take some immune cells and stem cells from the person you got the kidney from and implant those into your body so that some of that immune system recognizes the kidney is native and the rest of your immune system recognizes the rest of your body as native. So now you don't actually have a tissue mismatch. You have an immune system that knows that organ and it can, you know, protect that organ from the rest of your body trying to fight it and then stop taking all these immune cells, do it with a single cell transplant and, uh, you know, restore, restore some quality of life and open up to say, now I don't need a perfect match to implant a kidney. Maybe I just need half as good a match or maybe not even half as good a match. And so we can start to implant more, implant more tissues. Yeah. There's been, a, there's a lot of people whose you know, organs simply aren't accepted for transplant at the time of their death, even if it's, even if they die in a controlled way in a hospital. So it would, would make them potentially a, a benefit to an organ donor because, you know, there's not a close proximity match looking for that tissue. Mm-hmm. Now we can open it up and you know save more of those save more of those organs for transplant, and uh, yeah, so it's uh, you know I'm still you know I'm still driving headfirst into uh, how do we fix the organ shortage? How do we prevent all these wasted organs? How do we prevent you know unnecessary illness and improve quality of life and not just quantity of life? I've just you know I'm just kind of pivoted to a different uh, a different part of the transplant world, but uh, you know. The, uh, at the end of the day, you know, we're going to be in the clinic and in patient lives faster than I would have with 3D printing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I've left it in great hands. And I think, you know, there's a lot of other, you know, people way smarter than me that are working in, uh, in 3D printed tissues. So I think that field is in good hands. And uh, it was time for me to, you know, both with what's going on in the world with, uh, you know, disease and pandemics and everything else, mm-hmm. it was time for me personally to uh, pivot a little bit closer back to the clinic. Uh, you know, my passion is helping, uh, helping people achieve the lives they want to live. And uh, I've just got an amazing opportunity to, uh, you know, to have that happen on a much closer basis. It, it sounds like um, they're parallel endeavors, you know, yeah. 3D printing, 
whether it's food, which we've talked about on this show, or um, <clears throat> organs, maybe a conversation for a future show, or 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 component, you know, valves or com- components of organs. But what? Let's call that paradise, right? We can just we can just tell the machine, but we paradise is a ways off. We got to eat on the way to paradise, and yep. so how do we between now and then, with um, science that is easier and, and experimentation and tools that are, e- I don't want to say, I'm not saying they're easy, but easier. This is a big engineering problem that that's going to take a while, decades to do. In the meantime, between now and then, we have all this other good work. I know somebody that is um, a very dear friend of mine that, that that is in a certain medical situation where they probably will need a transplant. And one of the things that they're in, in those conversations that he and I have had is it's one thing to find the match. There's there there are a number of opportunities for that, but then to survive the match, and you know anything that you can do to make the once I get it, um, one there's more opportunity for me to um, receive uh, an organ because the match doesn't have to be as precise. And secondly, once I've received it, to um, elongate that time that this is viable for me, yeah. hopefully. Uh, replicating a natural long life anyway. Um, I think everybody would be behind that big idea. That's a great idea to be working on. Yeah, thanks. You know, it's, uh, I'm, you know, I've been here for two months. I'm, uh, you know, I'm excited to be here, you know, pivoted from, you know, uh, chief science officer role now to, uh, uh, to a head of quality role. Mm-hmm. Um, Delicate quality is uh, is the guys to hold your hand and get you across the finish line. Right. And uh, you know, I've spent my whole career uh, really focused on being a closer. So this is just uh, you know, give me one more opportunity to be a closer and uh, start uh, you know, positively impacting patient lives. Well, Gene, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It was a fascinating conversation for me, and hopefully, um, uh, I can entice you to come back on and talk about some more. Uh, big ideas. Thanks for coming on today. All right. Well, thanks, David. I'm glad, uh, you know, glad we were able to find the time and uh, really enjoyed the conversation. And, uh, you know, hopefully we've got a couple people out there in cyber world that'll uh, enjoy it too. Oh, I'm sure they will. If nothing, I think we're going to hook them at uh, Vomit Comet some way, somehow. Yeah. I think yeah. they're going to be captured by that. Well, thanks so much for coming on. And if you've enjoyed the show, please like, subscribe, share, and comment. We'll see you next time on the QTS Experience. We'll see you, everybody.